Turn, if you would, to 1 John chapter 1. I'll give you a moment to find that since it's not what we've been talking about. Last week, well, week before last, we did finish off the book of Mark. Technically, we had finished it the week before, but we talked about it for a while. I've actually never taught 1 John before. So this will be a new experience for all of us. Uh, Generally, I teach new books because I want to know what they say. Uh, I have found the best way for me to learn something is to force myself to stand up in front of you and teach it. So hopefully we'll figure it all out together. The first, well, we got to get over the introduction first. Those of you who have been in my classes for a while know that generally I don't like introductory lessons, so we'll do it very quickly. Who wrote the book of John? John. Who wrote the book of 1 John? Why do you think that? Nowhere in the letter does it say that it is written by John. Uh, But all the manuscripts that we have from the earliest church period state that it was written by the Apostle John. Now remember, there are two Johns of significance in the Gospels. This is John the Apostle, not John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. So just remember that. So we have the book, the Gospel of John, and then we have three letters that John wrote for, well, reasons that we will see as we work our way through them. Uh, Third John is one short chapter long. Uh, First John is a little bit longer, and so we'll spend uh, however many weeks it takes getting through it. It was written when? Once again, there is nothing at the top of the letter that says this is the date that when it was written. Most of the commentaries seem to think that it was written around 90-ish. There are some that say that it might have been written about the same time that the gospel was written, which would have backed it up earlier into maybe 70. But the thing to remember is that John was the youngest of the apostles. So he is now probably the last of the apostles. He is the elder statesman talking to us about what he thinks we ought to know. And what is it that he thinks we ought to know? Well, basically, he's telling us that we need to think the right things, that is, know the truth, and the truth being Jesus Christ, and we need to act the right way. We need to live according to our beliefs. And that's what he's going to talk about. And we'll have a long discussion about the intersection of those two things. It is interesting, still my wife's ESV study Bible, there's a note here that I actually liked. The rhetoric of 1 John is challenging. John rarely sustains a clear line of argument for more than a few lines or verses. He wanders from subject to subject, unencumbered by any discernible outline. That's the way my grandchildren talk. One commentary actually 
kind of jokingly, he was jokingly, suggesting that you teach the book topically. You know what that means? If you've been in here long enough, I've uh, taught the book of Proverbs twice in this class. The first time I taught the book of Proverbs, I did it topically. Let's look at the book of Proverbs to see what it says about wisdom. Let's look at the book of Proverbs to see what it says about a fool. Let's look at the book of, and so on and so forth, which I might add is probably the best way of teaching the book of Proverbs. But the second time I decided to get gutsy and I started at verse one and I kept going. And if you remember, we got to chapter 10 and we jumped to chapter 29 because we had to finish this thing some way. We are not going to discuss the book of 1 John topically. We are going to take it verse by verse. Now, that actually, though, raises some interesting discussions, because we're going to see in today's lesson that if you say that you don't sin, you're lying, you're fooling yourself, you're kidding. But then we're going to get over later in the book, and it says... If you're in a relationship with God and you keep sinning, you're not in a relationship with God. So wait a minute. Am I going to keep sinning or am I supposed to not be sinning in order to have a good relationship with God? We'll talk about that, but we'll talk about it when we get to it. What that means in about eight lessons when I get to that verse, I may contradict everything that I said today but we'll blame it all on John, okay? So, any questions about what we're going to cover? That was the introduction in four and a half minutes. What is the occasion for the writing of the book of John? Some commentaries would say that the book is written as a response to the heresy of Gnosticism. Um, and then other commentaries would say, no, it has nothing to do with that. Um, the reason is, is that Gnosticism was a heresy of the early church, but it became more prevalent in the second century, not the first century. So people are saying John would not have addressed that. But Gnosticism itself had been around before the Christians showed up. So there would have been the ideas already circulating. So today we'll have a tiny, tiny discussion about Gnosticism, but then we'll go on to the discussion of the rest of the book. Okay, off we go. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we look upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the prologue of 1 John. John is going to tell us about stuff. 
He is going to tell us about what he has seen, what he has heard, what was made manifest to him, what existed from eternity past, and John and the other apostles are bearing witness to it. What was that? Come on, this is the easy question. Jesus! It is not a squirrel, it's Jesus. You've heard the old squirrel joke, right? We use it all the time at our house. The elementary school teacher is teaching the Sunday school and says what has a tail and is furry and climbs a tree. And one of the students says, well, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel. (laughs) It's a really old joke. So around our house, we always go, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but it's probably Jesus. The answer is Jesus. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched, concerning the word of life. John is the elder statesman. He is the last guy of the original 12 apostles who saw Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who lived with Jesus. And I say that. There were probably other disciples, even younger than him, who had seen them, but not of the 12. And he wants you to know who Jesus is. And he wants you to know that knowing who Jesus is changes everything in your life. Now, I told you we were going to mention Gnosticism just briefly. Gnosticism is based on the idea of you need to know the secret knowledge. Gnostic knowledge, the secret knowledge. There is this truth that is hidden from all of you mere mortals. And we collectively are enlightened and we know the truth. They're less interested in repentance and more interested in being in the know. And they have this strange breakup of gods because they believe that the material world in and of itself is evil. There is the spiritual world, which is good, and there's the material world, which is evil. That's where all the sin happens. You know, God is pure spirit. He doesn't sin. We are kind of this bizarre mix. That's why we sin. So Jesus, to a good Gnostic, didn't have a body. Why? Because if he had had a body, he would have been a sinner like you and me because the body in its, of itself is wicked and evil. I've said this in here before, you know. You watch Jesus walking by, uh, beside the Sea of Galilee and you look behind him and there's no footprints. Why? Because the body that Jesus had is an illusion. Now, 
there are those who take this to say, well, Jesus was a guy, and at the baptism, the Spirit descended on him, and then at the right before the crucifixion, the, the Spirit left because, well, the Spirit can't die. That is Gnosticism. Why do we, why is this appealing to people? Well, we want to be able to explain away why I do bad things. Well, it's all my body's fault. It's not my spirit's fault. And it breaks, I mean, it makes this dichotomy within us. There is the spirit that only does good and is sinless and perfect. And then there's this wretched body. Gnosticism is actually alive and well in our world today. A lot of cults are based on this idea that you need to know the secret knowledge. We actually had in one of my classes this week a discussion about cults. And I told them, you know, as a young person, if somebody ever tells you, I'm going to tell you some secret, but don't tell your parents, that's usually an indicator that it's a cult. Because they had this secret knowledge. Now, why is that important? Because John is going to tell us that Jesus stood before them. He was made manifest. They saw him. They poked him. They ate with him. They lived life with him. John is going to tell them no, he wasn't some mystical spirit. He was the Son of God made manifest to us. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Now, you can go online right now and find hundreds of thousands of sermons of every preacher in the country today. You can, you know, forget listening to me. Go listen to John Piper's sermons. You can listen to all of them. But can you imagine listening to Jesus? Even the crowd were amazed at his teaching because he, had, he spoke as one who had authority not just like everybody else, well, like me. The only authority I have standing up here is the Word of God. Jesus spoke with authority. And John is sitting there saying, I listened. We, we the apostles, listened to Jesus. Not only did we listen to him, we saw him. We seen him with our eyes. Well, how else are you going to see something? I mean, other than with your eyes. Well, John wants us to know that we're not talking about some, you know, mental construct. You know, I see unicorns because I can envision them in my head. No, he is saying we saw him with our physical eyes. It is interesting because John does, in the gospel, spend a lot of time talking about physical blindness, 
and spiritual blindness. Remember, Jesus heals the blind man, and there's actually about three chapters where he discusses this as a picture of our spiritual blindness. So there is such a thing as spiritual insight. But he's saying we saw him. We saw him every day. Now, the only one of you that sees me every day is sitting up here on the front row. And and we've got a deal, okay? She's not going to tell you the things that I do when I'm not here. Okay? We're, We're just, I mean, let's just get that straight. She has seen me, well, I won't even go there. These guys had seen Jesus probably every day for three years. Probably every day, because he did send them out occasionally. Okay, they saw him when he was tired. Do you think he got irritable when he was tired? I do. Yeah, I don't think he did. Do you think he sinned when he was tired? Mm, I do. No, I don't think he did. They had seen him. They had seen him every day. Which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon What is the difference between seeing and looking upon? Well, it's this idea of a relationship. You know, it's like I see some object, but I'm not really looking at it. Have you ever done that? You know, your eyes register that this thing has occurred or is there in front of you, but it doesn't have any meaning for you. But rather... Some things we look at, we examine, we seek to understand. And that's what John is telling us the apostles did in their relationship with Jesus. And have touched with our hands. Remember, last week was Easter. We talked about the resurrection the central, one of the central teachings of Christianity. And after the resurrection, um, Jesus shows up and Thomas says, you know, if I don't actually touch him, I don't, I'm not going to believe he's there. And Jesus says, here, touch it. Now, it's interesting. There were some ancient writers that would say Thomas never touched Jesus because, I mean, First off, he's standing there in front of you, so you know it's him. But secondly, it was like he was too holy, too set apart. I think they all touched him. I think even if they just gave him a hug, they touched him. They knew he was a resurrected ghost? No, a body. This is what they had seen. Concerning the word of life. And then there's almost this parenthetical statement. The life, that would be Jesus. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. Didn't he just say they had seen it? Yes. 
but he wanted them to understand that Jesus had been made flesh, was made manifest, was made clear to everyone around them, was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to you and proclaimed to you the eternal life. This was the job of the apostles, to proclaim what they had seen, to proclaim what Jesus had done, to proclaim the truth of who Jesus was. Why did Jesus need eyewitnesses? So they could tell the next set of witnesses who could tell the next set of witnesses who could tell the next set of witnesses who could tell us what they had seen. And proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. Remember, this is the prologue. I am going to tell you what I have seen and what I have heard. Just a side note. I don't know about you, but I did not walk with the physical Jesus. I didn't see the physical Jesus. I didn't touch the physical Jesus. But what are we told to do today? Us, we. We are supposed to tell what we have seen and what we have heard. This, by the way, is evangelism. Just bearing witness to what God has done in our lives and in the lives of those around us. That's what you and I are called to do. <laughs> that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Why is he writing this book? So that you and I can have fellowship with... You and I can have fellowship with the apostles, and you and I can have fellowship with God. What is the purpose of church? Why are we here today? To have fellowship with believers, those who are present, those who have come before us, and to have fellowship with God. Let's remind ourselves. Let's go back. Well, let's go way back. Adam had fellowship with God. Remember? It says they walked around the garden and chatted. Can you imagine? I mean, it's one thing to walk with Jesus, but Adam's walking with God. What would that have been like? He had pure fellowship with the creator of the universe. And then something happened. Sin entered the world. Eve, then Adam, ate the fruit that they were forbidden to eat, and that fellowship was broken. 
That fellowship that had been the intention that God wanted with us, that we would have fellowship with him, that fellowship was broken. You can read the rest of the Bible, every single bit of it, is an attempt to get that fellowship back. Yes. Why does he not mention the Holy Spirit? I don't know. I'll think about that one. Okay. I think he is emphasizing that he has been with Jesus and Jesus came from the Father. Now, we know... We know in the book of John, he has several chapters about the Spirit coming and what the Spirit is going to accomplish. So it's not that he's not aware of the Spirit. I don't know. I'll think about that one. Hmm. He forgot? No, I don't think he forgot. (laughs) I would contend that every human created religious moral activity is an attempt by human beings to get back to that fellowship with God. But we as sinners, left to our own devices, do that in sinful ways. So we create Greek gods. We create Roman gods. We create this. We create that. And every bit of that is an attempt for us to get back to that right relationship with God. But God had a plan all along. Once again, go back to Genesis and read the whole rest of the Bible. And that plan was Jesus Christ. We just finished the book of Mark. We just talked about the whole life of Christ. God, in human form, living his life, paying the penalty for our sins so that relationship can be restored. And that's what John is going to tell us. What is the goal of writing this book so that you and I can have fellowship with God? That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There's actually some discussion about whether the word is our joy or your joy. Um, I don't lose a lot of sleep over it one way or the other. Um, Earlier, he's talking about we, and I believe he's talking about the apostles. But when he gets down here and he says our joy, I think he means our joy. Us, we, collectively. All of the believers through all of history so that our joy may be complete. Joy is a tough word for me. Why is it a tough word? I like it. If you remember several years ago, we worked through the book of Galatians. And I told you at the time, the whole reason I was doing the book of Galatians, so so 
was so that I could get to the fruit of the Spirit, and we had a lesson on almost each one individually. And we had a lesson about joy. The problem that I and we collectively have with the word joy is that we, in our minds, connect it totally with, well, being happy. I'm happy. I had a good meal. I I had a good time with my kids. I did something that was fun. I learned, I did something that made me happy, and that's joy. And somehow we're convinced that joy equals happiness equals pleasure. Did I mention to you, John is the last of the apostles? I have mentioned to you before, the apostles didn't die in their sleep in old age. The apostles were crucified, stoned, beaten, whipped. According to church tradition, John himself was thrown into a vat of boiling oil. And it had no effect. Why? Well, that one's actually easy to understand. God still had a few more books for him to write. So what do you do with a guy who, when you throw him in boiling oil, doesn't, well, cook? You exile him to the island of Patmos. Because what else are you going to do with him? And while he's there, he writes this little book called the Book of the Revelation. John and other members of the church leadership were in Jerusalem until they were run out of Jerusalem. And church tradition says he went to Ephesus and taught there. And I mean, they were run out of town. They were beaten. They were stoned. They were ridiculed. They were accused of being a lot of different things. Was it fun? Was it pleasurable? Was it happy? And they look back and they say, joy. And you know what? I have trouble with that. I, being raised in our very, well, materialistic age, that is, stuff is what matters. Having more of it, good. Having less of it, meh, not so good. And I look at John, and I look at the other apostles, and I look at Paul, and we look at Jesus, who, for the joy that was set before him, went to the cross. And I'm going, I have trouble with that. This book is written so that we will have fellowship and that we will have joy. I mentioned to my mother a couple of weeks ago that I was going to do the book of 1 John. And she goes, oh, I love that book. She says, I love that book because of the word no. Not N-O, 
but the word K-N-O-W. 39 times in this book, we're going to talk about knowing th things, knowing something. Where does this joy come from for John? He knows Christ. I mean, just to give an example, we can skip down here. And by this, chapter 2, verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know Him. How do you know what you know? We're going to have a long lesson about that. He tells us in this verse, we know that we know if we follow His commandments. If we are walking in fellowship with Him, we will know who He is. If we know who He is, then nothing else matters. Why do I struggle with joy? Because I know a lot of things. But I don't know that I know Jesus. It's a strange sentence because one is almost an intellectual I know and the second one is a relationship, a knowledge that produces, well, that's next week's lesson. <sighs> this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness. If we have, say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Throughout the scripture, we have this picture. There is walking in the light and there is walking in the darkness. Go back and read the first chapter of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and He was the light and the light came into the darkness and the darkness hated Him. That's what it tells us. We are going to contrast two different ways of living your life. Option one, walk in the light. This idea of walk is more than just me walking across this room. It is your lifestyle. It is your way of life. You walk in a certain way. Are you walking in the light? That means that we allow God to illuminate everything around us. Or are we hiding in the darkness? And John is going to say, if you walk in the darkness, you do not have fellowship with him. Which requires us to answer a question. And this is a big question that has baffled theologians forever. And you think I'm going to answer it? 
we will see in chapter 2 that John is clearly talking to Christians. This book is written to Christians. And he is concerned about the Christians walking in the light or walking in the darkness. In fact, in the next chapter, he's going to get really strong about it. Like, you can't be walking in the darkness. So the fellowship that we're talking about here, is it A, salvation? Or is it B, something more than salvation? In the sense of, I can be a believer, but still be dabbling in the darkness in such a way that I'm not actually experiencing fellowship with God on a daily basis? And my answer is going to be, like my answer to these questions usually are, is yes. Obviously, if you are not a believer, you do not have fellowship with God. But we also acknowledge, and we're going to see it in the end of this chapter, which we're not going to get to because we're already out of time, that we as believers are going to sin. It is possible for a believer to sin in such a way that they do not experience the fellowship that they have with God. They have the relationship with God, but they cannot experience, they don't feel right with God. So, what does the light and what does the darkness look like? Well, answer number one, God is light. Let's just start right there. God is light. That means God is holy. In God, there is no unholiness. There is no sin. There is no taint of sin. There is no idea of sin. There is pure righteousness. That is the light. Ephesians chapter 5 has a long discussion about walking in the light. And it mentions stay away from those worthless deeds of the darkness. Well, what are those deeds? Well, the chapter actually gives you a list of them. Immorality, covetousness, you name it, it's a sin, it's the darkness. So here's the question, and John is going to answer this question. I'm a believer. I was saved by grace, but you know what? That sin over there looks really good. I think I'll wander over here for a while. And John says, if over here you're living in darkness and you say you have fellowship with God, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. Why is he writing the book? So that you 
and I will experience fellowship with God. What is preventing us from having fellowship with God? We keep walking in the darkness. It's really pretty simple. What did I say the theme of the book was? Believe the right stuff, walk the right way. We, you and I, you and I have this tendency to, for some reason, separate those two. And we talk about people who believe the right stuff. And we talk about people who do the right things. As if somehow, and John says no. These two things are combined. You know the right stuff that allows you to do the right things. You do the right things and you have fellowship with God. And that's going to be the purpose of the book of 1 John. How do we know that we know we have a relationship with God? How do we know that we know so that we can have joy? How can we have fellowship if we don't have joy? How can we have joy if we don't have fellowship? And we will pick up right here next week. Generally, Father, thank you that Jesus was made manifest. That he paid the penalty for our sins so that we can have fellowship. I pray, Lord, that we would not walk in the darkness but walk with you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.